everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling, and with me as always is Brandon Odo. Hello. We have uh, a special episode today we're really pretty excited about Every time we issue a call for what do you guys want to hear, what topics do you want to discuss, something that always comes up that we've never been able to address is critical care of the obstetric patient. Brandon and I just don't have a lot of experience in this field. Uh, and to be honest, there aren't that many people who do. The The person who can speak intelligently about the OB world and the ICU world is a rare breed. Um, so we've tried and tried many times to get this to make this happen. So we're delighted to have Dr. Stephanie Martin with us today. She is the medical director for criti- uh, clinical concepts and obstetrics, and she's a maternal fetal medicine specialist in Scottsdale, Arizona, and co-host of the Critical Care OB podcast. And she's going to discuss some OB critical care stuff with us today. I'm just thrilled to be here, but you set a high bar there. All right. So for um for nebulous reasons, you are in uh, labor and delivery today. And there is a 31-year-old female who comes in because she's G1P0 and about 35 weeks, six days pregnant. Uh, she was admitted to LND about 12 hours ago, at which point her vitals were stable. She had a nice, reassuring fetal heart monitoring strip. Um, she got started on some Pitocin and uh, some ampicillin. Uh, and this was all because she had ruptured membranes. Uh, So preparing to move her towards delivery, an epidural is placed. Things are going okay. She gets dilated up to about 6 centimeters with 80% effacement and about minus 1 station. But around there, the dilation seems to halt. So for better monitoring, you put in an intrauterine pressure catheter, fetal scalp electrodes. And right around this time, she starts to feel faint. Uh, She gets repositioned. Uh, but you check the, the fetal heart monitoring with your new electrode, and the fetal heart rate's only in the 70s. Obviously, this is much too slow. So um, you call for a stat C-section. Um, you're about to roll her back to the OR. Um, you get a quick set of vitals, and her blood pressure is down to only 80 over 50. Her heart rate's about 110. She asks you if she's going to die. And then as you're rolling down the hall, she seizes. She has a little bit of vomiting, and then she seems to be unresponsive. So you blow into the OR. They throw her onto the monitor. You check a pulse, and nobody can feel one. On the monitor, you see a systole. So before you actually do anything, in your mind, with a situation and a presentation like this, what is really your differential? Is there one thing or a few things that you are specifically worried about other than the general supportive care you're about to give her? Yeah, so obviously this is a pretty uncommon occurrence, thank goodness, in the world of labor and delivery. But when you have a patient like this that starts to decompensate pretty abruptly, and uh, what's interesting is that sense of doom, we hear that sometimes, and then they actually do arrest or decompensate pretty rapidly. That's nothing anyone ever wants to hear at the bedside. But 
first that comes to most people's minds at this point in a patient who's pulseless, seized, et cetera, is going to be amniotic fluid embolism because it's so abrupt, so rapid onset. There are certainly other things that could be going on. I mean, pulmonary embolism comes to mind, especially a massive one. She could be having a myocardial infarction, although that's pretty darn uncommon in a patient without some prior history of cardiac disease. She could have had a stroke. Um, Those are the things that come to mind immediately. But I think if you ask most OB folks, in a patient who has this kind of presentation, amniotic fluid embolism is going to be right at the top of the list. Okay. Now... Presumably, uh, you're going to proceed to perform ACLS. Assuming that most of the audience is familiar with kind of basic cardiac arrest care, with things like chest compressions and the usual drugs, in what ways is it going to differ in this case? What things are going to you going to do here or not do here or do differently that you might do on a different patient who is not pregnant? So I think this is a really key point to hear. First of all, Nothing is different. Everything is the same with one exception, and it's a big one. You're going to be delivering this baby within a couple of minutes. So the goal is you start your ACLS, you start your immediate resuscitation, and if you do not have return of spontaneous circulation within a couple of minutes, your goal is to start the cesarean section. We call it a resuscitative cesarean section within four minutes with the goal to have the baby out by five minutes. And that actually improves your likelihood of getting mom back. So it relieves compression of the aorta vena cava. It decreases this huge cardiac output requirement. Um, and f- if they're near term, like this patient is, you know, the, the physical obstruction to trying to perform compressions effectively is removed. So the, and, and obviously, if you've got a mom in cardiac arrest, then there's really no hope for the baby unless you get it out. So there's lots of good reasons to deliver that baby. But the ACLS and the initial resuscitation really is not different at all. The meds don't change. The doses don't change. The indications for defibrillation, everything is exactly the same. Now, one key point here, I think, that that a lot of teams maybe recognize but don't verbalize that the OB team really has to be prepared to do at least the first five minutes of any resuscitation. And any OB team can be trained to do this if they're simulating and preparing. Because realistically, the code team is probably not going to be able to get to where the patient is within about five minutes. I mean, that's, that's, you know, what the most people are experiencing. ICUs are generally not close to Uh, where the patient is on labor and delivery, and much of the code teams often come from ICUs. Maybe it's an ER or whatever, but, um, you know, the OB teams really need to be preparing for this because they're going to be responsible. Okay. So standard ACLS, standard drugs, defibrillation, chest compressions, none of that changes. Am I right in saying that the displacing the uterus to the side is is something you're supposed to be doing. I think everyone kind of vaguely remembers this from ACLS. Yes, absolutely. And um, the newest guidelines have changed that recommendation a little bit and made it a little bit easier. So we used to prop things under the hip, you know, to try and rotate the patient. But the focus is really on effective chest compressions. And having a patient tilted off their back 
really diminishes your ability to do effective chest compressions. So the patient stays flat on her back and then somebody literally takes their hands on the uterus and physically moves it to one side or the other. Just move it off the aorta vena cava, get it off of that uh, uh, bifurcation. So when a uterus, by the way, is above 20 weeks size, that's right where the bifurcation of the aorta vena cava are. So if she's beyond 20 weeks, that uterus is going to be compressing the, compressing the, the vena cava and the aorta. So physically manhandling the uterus off of those uh, vessels is really, really important. And then next is delivering the baby, all while ACLS continues. Okay. So you said this baby needs to come out and it should be within four minutes? Yes. Now, four minutes, I don't know if anybody has ever really looked at the clock in a cardiac arrest. That may sound like not a long time, but a reasonable amount of time. That is like no time. I mean, we've probably all turned around and said, oh, I think we've been working this for a few minutes and it's been at least 40. And if it feels like a short amount of time, it's been at least 10. Four minutes is like the time to like put gloves on and find a scalpel. Is how is how What does your workflow look like for this? Are you essentially... If this patient like this codes in front of you, you're basically getting ready to make an incision immediately. I mean, are you are you waiting for some amount of time, like a minute? <laughs> yeah, so it's all really good points. I, I kind of tongue-in-cheek tell teams when I'm working with them on this that this is the longest, shortest five minutes of your life. I mean, you have really no sense of time, and so it's super important, number one, that this be practiced. You will absolutely never be able to make this goal if you do not practice it with your teams. So it has to be practiced and you have to figure out what your obstacles are in order to achieve this. And this has actually been studied. Um, and from my perspective, I think four to five minutes is a very laudable goal and we should continue to try to meet it because the sooner we get the baby out, the better the chance of resuscitating mom and, and improving baby's outcome. But it's not practically achievable often. And that's been shown in, in, in a lot of research, but it, the only way to, to get close to this goal is to practice it. A couple of key points in order to make this happen. Number one is this is all happening exactly where the mom arrested. If she happens to be in an operating room, then you, do with it, you deal with it there. If she's on the floor, you deal with it there. If she's on labor and delivery or the antepartum unit, you're dealing with it there. You are not moving the patient to an operating room in order to perform this delivery. That's valuable time that cannot be wasted and you will not be able to meet this goal. And I've done perimortem or resuscitative cesarean sections on the floor in a patient's room. I've done them in the OR. I've done them in a bed on another unit. You just have to do them wherever the patient may be. And that might be in an intensive care unit as well. <laughs> no one likes to see a baby warmer coming into an ICU, but you know, you've got to be prepared to do it wherever it happens without moving the patient. And the other key point is that you need to know what's on your code cart. Because the biggest obstacle to performing this resuscitative cesarean section is a scalpel. That's all you need. You don't need betadine. You don't need drapes. You don't need towels. You don't need anything else except a scalpel, at least to get started. And that can be hard to find if it's not kept either on the code cart or near to the code cart and you haven't practiced how you're going to get that scalpel. So most of the teams that I work with, we arrange, they work through their systems to get a scalpel on the code cart so that when it's pulled to a pregnant woman's bedside, the scalpel is already there and ready to go. 
And if you do that, then you can also put a couple of other things in a little kit, you know, maybe a pair of scissors to cut the cord, a bucket to put the placenta in, etc. But really, truly, all you need is a scalpel to get started. Well, I, of course, like all young American men, carry a scalpel, but I certainly see your point. <laughs> um, now, if the patient in a setting like this were not in even the obstetric ward, is this something that could and maybe should be done by non-OBGYNs? I mean, certainly people will call for help, but you know that's not a lot of minutes. Right. So what I say to that generally is, first of all, you if you have an obstetric patient off the unit, whether they're in an ICU or med surge or whatever, and they would potentially be a candidate for a resuscitative cesarean section or we're monitoring the fetus in some way, you need to have a plan for an emergency response, and that includes arrest. So that needs to be decided before the patient is arrested. So that's a process that you you have to work through. Now, if you're in an ICU, then that conversation is going to be, ideally, you have an interprofessional conversation that says, okay, we're monitoring this baby. What happens if we have problems with the baby and we need to do an emergency delivery? What happens if mom arrests? Are we prepared to do everything we need to do at the bedside and care for the baby? Can we do a simulation for this? Can we do you know, a tabletop simulation where you're literally just at the table talking about how this would work and what are all the moving parts that need to take place. But if you're taking care of obstetric patients in your hospital, you need to be having conversations and simulating how you're going to deal with an obstetric emergency out of labor and delivery. I think that's really, really important. Right. I mean, four minutes, five minutes, that's such a short amount of time that it would literally take one bobble to take you from a couple minutes to, you know, 10 minutes. So kind of planning through the logistics is probably even more important than for most things. There's not that many things that are on such a short timeline. Exactly. And the thing is, if you don't practice it and you don't know who your responders are, you'll never meet it. If you look at the literature, most of these are being done within six to 15 minutes, but that doesn't mean we should set our goal of 15 minutes because that's lack of oxygen to the baby. You know, you're decreasing the likelihood of resuscitating mom. That's a, it's a laudable goal, but you have to practice it in order to get there. Now, from my perspective, I don't feel like the resuscitative cesarean section is the responsibility of anybody but the OBGYN or the person who has been prepared to do this. So it might be a general surgeon in some facilities. I mean, some institutions they do, they may, you know, not be doing a lot of complicated OB care. They may not have, you know, OB response or even in-house at all. And so they may have worked through a process where maybe it's general surgery doing the resuscitative cesarean section. But I don't think it is appropriate to expect a non-trained surgeon to do this, but it begs the question of, is this patient appropriate for your level of care? Because some of these things can be anticipated and she can be transferred to a higher level of care if we know she's high risk for this. But if it happens out of the blue, like this patient, low risk, you know, no signs that anything was going to go wrong, every OB unit has to have a process in place to deal with an obstetric emergency like maternal cardiac arrest. Okay. Now, One of the things that often guides us when we're running a cardiac arrest is what our sense is for the cause of it, because other than treating specific etiologies, it sometimes tells us about the prognosis. Um, If the underlying cause is something that's not been corrected or correctable, then we we may not uh, try as, as long or as hard to get a pulse back and vice versa the other way. If you're working this arrest with the assumption that this was caused by an amniotic fluid embolism, 
is the prognosis good or, or poor? In other words, is this something where people are often salvageable or does that cause itself pretend a poor outcome? That's a really interesting question, because if you look historically, um, and if you talk to a lot of folks in OB, and you say, what, you know, how do you expect somebody to do after an amniotic fluid embolism? You know, mortality is was really expected, but that's not the case anymore with modern care. So the thing with amniotic fluid embolism is that these patients are going to have pretty sudden onset of three things. And I like to call them the three B's because they're easy to remember. And that's bleeding from DIC, breathing, so they have respiratory rest, and blood pressure. They've got sudden cardiovascular collapse. And it kind of all happens simultaneously. The treatment is addressing any DIC that comes up, respiratory compromise, and cardiac arrest or cardiovascular collapse. So the, the management is something that all ICU teams are familiar with taking care of, and all OB teams are, are familiar with taking care of. I mean, these are things that we deal with from other more common causes like hemorrhage or sepsis and septic shock, you know, et cetera. But with AFE, it happens all at once. So you've got to start with ACLS and your basic resuscitation. Then you're going to anticipate massive endothelial damage, leaky vessels, which lead to non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, ARDS. They have DIC. The interesting thing about AFE is that they have DIC first, and then they have bleeding. In OB, we deal with DIC when bleeding comes first, usually massive hemorrhage, and then we're dealt with, dealing with DIC. But these patients will have DIC, and they may not have evidence of bleeding immediately. It might come a little bit later. So you kind of have to be dealing with things all at once. The good news is that if you respond appropriately immediately to the arrest, and the patient gets appropriate supportive care for all of these catastrophes that are happening at once... This is a survivable event, and the data is showing that in more recent times with modern care, this is survivable. Okay. Now, DIC is not something we love to see in a patient who just had a, a large emergent surgery. After the baby comes out, and I, I suppose particularly if you have a pulse bag, what's going to happen with the abdomen? Would you just leave it open? Yeah, that's interesting. So um, I've done quite a few of these resuscitative cesarean sections, and um, basically what happens is after you do the delivery, which is very quick and not difficult to do, there's really no bleeding. And that's because there's no blood pressure. So you have a moment where you can stop. So once the baby's out, the placenta's out, now you stop and reassess. And that's when the conversation needs to happen of why did this happen to this patient at this time? So that's where you're starting to go through your, your differential of, could this be an AFE? Could she have a pulmonary embolism? Did she have a stroke? Like, what did she hemorrhage and we didn't recognize it? What is actually happening so that we can direct our therapy to whatever that may be? But you have time to do that. There is no rush to close the uterus or close the abdomen because they're just not bleeding at this point. One advantage I will speak to of having the abdomen open and not being in a hurry to close it, I mean, you can just cover it and, and wait and let the resuscitation continue. But one of the big advantages is you now have access to the aorta. So that allows you to check pulse. <laughs> is there a pulse? Is there not a pulse? Do we have circulation or not? And if necessary, you can redirect flow cephalad by, you know, manually obstructing the aorta, or if you get a trauma team in there, then they can cross clamp if they choose to. But you have other 
opportunities by not being in a rush to close the abdomen. And there really is no rush. So my experience, I've generally left the abdomen open for a little while. Then we can talk about, is it time to move the patient either to a more favorable location, like from the floor to the bed or to an OR, you know, let's to an ICU. Where are we? What needs to happen here? You've got some time. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. All right, so this patient is is coded. The baby does come out, and fortunately, a pediatrician or somebody is around who can take care of the baby. Um, and you actually get a pulse back at about six minutes. Patient remains hypotensive, hypoxic, all the things that we would expect to see, um, but for the moment, kind of quasi-stable. So it goes to the ICU. Um, they get some initial labs. The hemoglobin has dropped to eight from 13. The platelets are around 100. PT, PTT are all prolonged. The D-dimer is unmeasurably high. The fibrinogen is around 40. Um, certainly looking like DIC, as you had mentioned. And there is oozing of blood, both vaginally and into the incision. A lot of these things, I think, critical care types know how to manage or think they do. Um, are there any specific things you would expect to see in this kind of post-collapse period and anything we should know about treating it other than the usual things we would do as far as transfusion and managing DIC? Yeah, a lot of it is going to be the same. I think the interesting thing about a pregnant woman and immediately postpartum is really the same as a pregnant woman. Their physiology is the same, you know, for weeks to come. But number one, D-dimer and fibrin split products are not valuable uh, labs in a pregnant or postpartum woman. Uh, They're not going to be reflective of clot or DIC because they are normally significantly elevated in in pregnancy and in the immediate postpartum, especially in somebody who's just had surgery. So I'm sure they just ordered a DIC panel and it was included on it, but they will be abnormal, period. Fibrinogen levels should be abnormally elevated, So a normal, if your fibrinogen level on a pregnant or postpartum woman comes back in the normal range on the lab, she is consuming fibrinogen. That is not normal for a pregnant woman. So it can be, you can consider it normal, but it's not. It's being depleted. Even if she's not yet in DIC, it's being depleted. So we typically see fibrinogens in the 600 range in a pregnant postpartum woman, not 200, 300. So 40 is obviously DIC and profoundly abnormal for a pregnant or postpartum woman. I want to comment on the physiologic anemia of pregnancy that people talk about. It is never normal for a pregnant woman to be anemic. And anemia in pregnancy is generally defined as a hemoglobin less than 11. So that's never normal. But their hemoglobin will drop during pregnancy. So they have an increased blood volume that's primarily plasma. So it dilutes the hemoglobin. So it typically drops, but it should not drop below 11. So anemia is anemia in a pregnant woman, even though it may not uh, it may be lower than what her regular, her normal hemoglobin is. If it drops below 11, it's real. Her labs are significantly abnormal. Remember, we've dropped this hemoglobin from whatever, 13 to 8, with no visible bleeding to date. So this is hemolysis from DIC that's occurred instantaneously. That's a pretty profound drop in her hemoglobin. So all of that is reliable and, you know, significant for DIC in this setting, you're going to treat her just like a non-pregnant patient in that regard. You're going to transfuse her products to get her back. You're going to use the same targets. Um, Those are all reliable. But um, I think it's important to know in somebody who's not obviously in DIC, I think the fibrinogen is the one that people forget about, that they, they, they assume a normal fibrinogen is normal for pregnancy and it's not. Okay. And, you know, DIC, we often characterize with both 
you know, bleeding and potentially clotting. Uh, it sounds yes. like this is probably more going to be a problem of bleeding. Can we see pathological clotting occur as well? You could, and pregnant women are hypercoagulable pretty substantially, and it gets worse postpartum. So a normal pregnant state is hypercoagulable. Um, that's just how they live. And when you've got DIC, now you've got that's kind of exaggerated even more. So it can be a challenge trying to figure out how to do VTE prophylaxis in these patients and it tends to be mechanical. But yes, they'll a patient like this, even though she may not have bled to begin with, um, the bleeding is going to come, especially because she's got a freshly operated on abdomen. So you've got to get that fixed quickly. Otherwise, she's going to start filling her belly with blood. Sure. Uh, okay. Anything about hemodynamics that would differ from other patients? Um, if they need vasopressors or inotropes or whatever, this is much like any patient. Yeah, this is really like any patient. You use, use what you need to use. I mean, interestingly, I occasionally get called from an ICU saying, this mom wants to breastfeed. Can we use these medications? And my advice is always use whatever you need to save her life. Um, you can absolutely pump, uh, she can do breast pumping, even if intubated and unconscious, paralyzed, whatever we can breast pump, but we can dump the milk or we can save it depending on what she's on, but use what you need to use. None of that is going to change because she's uh, postpartum. Okay. So transfusion, supporting the breathing, supporting the hemodynamics, a lot of this is starting to get a little bit more into our wheelhouse. The one difference um, from a respiratory state, and this does matter um, in the ICU, when you have a, let's talk about pregnancy first. A pregnant woman exists in a state of a compensated respiratory alkalosis. That's normal for pregnancy. And it's actually necessary to have an ongoing pregnancy because she has to breathe off that CO2 in order to have a lower CO2 level than her baby. Because the only way the baby gets rid of CO2 is across the placenta and into mom's bloodstream. So her brain resets in the first trimester. She starts having increasing minute ventilation. So her, and it, that's primarily driven by an increase in tidal volume. So she's exchanging more CO2. Her CO2 levels drop. Baby now can excrete CO2 into mom. It just diffuses across and she takes care of it for the baby. So if you have a pregnant woman who's in the ICU and needs to be ventilated, mechanically ventilated, you're going to be increasing your tidal volume by about 40% to maintain this gradient while she's pregnant. I see. So if, at this point, postpartum, she still needs to maintain this alkalosis? Yes. And what's interesting, we don't have a lot of data in this area. And we know that they maintain this physiologic state in, a, in out of the ICU for weeks. It can take kind of weeks. Now, if she's in the ICU immediately postpartum, um, it's... I think it's appropriate to maintain that compensated respiratory alkalosis state. It may or may not be achievable, but um, but you don't have the fetus screaming for help at that point. So you've got some leeway where you can use your judgment of whether or not it's appropriate to maintain, you know, a pH of 7.4 to 7.44, or are we going to try and, uh, uh, you know, back off of that and, and not worry about it as much because we don't have a fetus that's going to be directly affected. Same thing with bicarb. So if you've got a pregnant woman in the ICU that's acidotic, um, let's say she's got DKA and she's in the ICU, it can be tempting to give her a bunch of bicarb in order to improve her ABG results. But if you don't understand that she needs to maintain that low PCO2 for the fetus, then what will happen is you'll artificially 
raise mom's PCO2, you will be then driving CO2 into the baby. The baby will become acidotic and will show up on the monitor. And now we're doing an emergency delivery for an acidotic baby in a mom who's already critically ill. Aha. Uh-huh. I see. So you have to be really cautious about bicarb in a pregnant woman. Sure. So fortunately, in this case, we're able to stabilize the patient. Um, she has actually manages to get extubated on day two in the ICU. Um, and then enters a situation that I think comes up not infrequently for us, which is trying to decide where the best place for this patient is. Uh, because I think pregnant women and probably postpartum women too really like to be in the obstetric unit where either their baby can be monitored or they can be near them. Uh, But it seems like a very different place that is often mysterious and scary to us where the monitoring is very different, um, what they're prepared for is very different. When do you think it's appropriate to transfer someone like this back into the obstetric world and out of our sort of medical world? That's a really great and challenging question, and it's going to be very institution-dependent. So number one priority is always going to be make sure mom is medically ready to be transferred out of whatever unit she's in. And don't rush that because she happens to be postpartum. So ideally what's happening is that you've got nurses from the obstetric world, whether it's labor and delivery nurses, anapartum nurses, postpartum nurses, participating in the care of this patient and helping the nurses understand how to do fundal massage and what is a normal amount of bleeding afterwards? What do you need to be concerned about? And how can we help with uh, facilitating breastfeeding if they want to breastfeed and and uh, visiting the baby? Often the babies are, are not at the bedside. They're in the neonatal intensive care unit because critical illness often goes with prematurity. So there's all of those things to navigate as well. But mom's medical condition comes first. The comfort level and experience with obstetric units and caring for moms post-ICU is going to vary pretty significantly. So in some units, the nurses that are the most comfortable are on labor and delivery. So even though she's not laboring and pregnant, she may be back transported to labor and delivery. Or um, she might go to uh, you know an antepartum ward, which is more like of a medical surge ward where the nurses there are taking care of sick, undelivered pregnant patients or high-risk, undelivered pregnant patients who are not actively laboring. Postpartum is a tricky place. And if you ever talk to postpartum nurses, we call them mother-baby nurses because they are responsible for mom and baby on on that unit. And they often have four couplets. So they'll have eight patients that they're caring for. And so they, if they're going to be the ones caring for this patient, Everybody needs to be comfortable that the nurse not only has the experience and the comfort level, but is not overstretched with all the number, the volume of stuff that she's expected to do, because this is not a normal postpartum patient. All right. Well, I think that was a kind of a great case to highlight this situation. Um, we'll say this was a case of AFE. Let's go over some general points with this. What What is amniotic fluid embolism? Is this literally embolization of amniotic fluid, or is it something else? Yeah. um, So we don't really, there's a lot we don't understand about AFE, but yes, the current thought is that the mom gets exposed to some component in the amniotic fluid itself that she then reacts to. Think like anaphylaxis. Okay. So it's a disseminated, diffuse, profound reaction to what she's been exposed to that leads to 
cardiovascular collapse, respiratory arrest, and sudden onset of DIC. All of this happens either during pregnancy or right around the time of delivery. This is not something that patients go home and come back with. Okay, so it's happening right around that time. Historically, it was believed that it was all due to a large amount of fetal debris because amniotic fluid is not water. It is it has a lot of stuff, including um, skin cells, hair, uh, stuff called vernix, which is that like cold cream kind of stuff that the babies are slathered in. It's very thick and and viscous like um, that. All of that gets into the circulation, then gets into the lungs, and that causes the problem. But that's not it. It's far far more complex than that. And everything happens instantaneously, and then you're dealt deal. You know, you're left dealing with all the chaos that occurs because of the mom's reaction to that exposure. Now, interestingly, we know that moms are routinely exposed to debris from the amniotic fluid and don't react. What we don't know is why some women have this reaction response that leads to cardiac arrest. Okay, so it's sort of an inflammatory response to being exposed to this fluid, but it's not literally a mechanical embolization like we might see with a, a PE causing right heart failure and that sort of thing. Well, you can have a component of that. If they get a large amount of debris, you can get fetal debris in the lungs, and it can definitely create uh, you know, a pulmonary hypertension situation, a right heart failure situation. That can absolutely be part of it, but it's not the primary issue. It's not the cause of everything. It's okay. all just it can be part of the big picture. Now, I think most people know this is not not a very common disease, but I and I think people are not good at visualizing large or small numbers. They all kind of run together. So, give me some sense for how rare this is. You know, if you were let's say uh, a reasonably busy urban hospital, how often would they see this? in a year? Or if it's zero, you know, how, how many years until they would see it? Most OB providers will go their entire career and never see it. Okay. I've seen it personally, where I was the one performing the resuscitative cesarean section four times in my career. I've been practicing for 20 years. And I have worked in some incredibly busy facilities where, you know, between the two hospitals I was covering, we're doing 15,000 deliveries a year. So this is a rare condition. We don't actually know the true incidence of it because the diagnostic criteria are have been, you know, jumbled for quite a while. And it's only in the last several years that we've gotten some standardization of the diagnostic criteria so that we can start to understand better the true incidence of it. But it's pretty rare. Okay, so I'm going to file that in my head as rare, and it wouldn't shouldn't blow your mind if you never see it, but depending on your work setting, it also in no way should surprise you to come across it. Absolutely. And the key is, even though it's rare, the consequences of it are not rare. Cardiovascular, you know, collapse, respiratory failure, DIC, these are things that we deal with, you know, daily in hospitals. So it results, it doesn't result in any special, unique, bizarre critical illness that has never been encountered before. It's the reason it all happened that that is unusual and rare. Sure. And I mean, that brings us into, other than as the supportive care, it, are there any disease-specific treatments that are appropriate or even being uh, trialed? Um, I mean, it's inflammatory. Has anyone used steroids? I've heard talk about lipids being given. Is there anything that can actually treat this? The short answer is no. So there are no proven therapies that will improve outcomes uh, with AFE. There are lots of things being bandied around and lots of things have been tried, but they are case series or case single case reports. And since 
patients can survive this and be resuscitated. They really, we really don't know what works at this point. Um, so there are no specific therapies for AFE. We really need research, and, and the Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation is is doing research in this right now and collecting samples from patients uh, to start to understand more about why this is happening. Because once we understand more of the mechanism of it, then we can start to investigate potential therapies. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I think that was a, an excellent kind of obstetric take on this problem. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Brian to get us a, another perspective as well. Yeah, so joining us now is Miranda Clausen, who's the executive director of the AFE Foundation. She's also Dr. Martin's co-host on the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast, and also her husband, Bryce, who's an ICU nurse. And they're going to kind of share with us a little bit more about this problem, but also this is um, this is kind of a special case in that Miranda is the patient we've been discussing. So you guys were on the other end of this case once upon a time. Talk, if you will, just a second about what that experience was like for you, what it did to you, how it affected your life later on down the road. Certainly. Well, thanks for asking. Um, I would definitely say, you know, we were just excited to be welcoming a baby. This was absolutely not on our radar. It wasn't in the what to expect when expecting. Had never heard of it before. So, um, you know, from my perspective, I don't remember a whole lot. I, I clearly don't remember, um, you know, having the seizure and or even, you know, being being conscious while my son was born. Um, I think coming to, it was very complex. Um, one, because I, I didn't know where I was. I had no idea what had happened. Um, and, you know, hearing the words amniotic fluid embolism for the first time, it was incredibly complex. Nobody could really truly explain it very well other than to say it's it's often fatal. And so I think planting the seed right away for me initially was um, just how fortunate and blessed we were. Um, and then I think that seed started to uh, develop into probably significant survivor guilt, but also really trying to understand and wrap my head around what had happened. Um, one thing I will say, too, is that I remember when people were explaining it to me, and the first question out of my mouth was, can I have another child? And I think everyone looked at me, you know, just so incredulously like, oh my gosh, we're just lucky that you're here. I think that's a really common response that many women have is because we don't understand what it is and we have no idea what we've been through. You know, all of you who've been providing the care have a clear idea. But as a patient, especially a lay patient who's not in healthcare, I had I had no one, no idea. Um, I'll let Bryce kind of just share uh, his experience of, of how this was. I don't think he'd ever been in a hospital before this had happened. Well, as you can imagine, it was uh, it was a very harrowing experience for me. I I was a layperson at the time, not in healthcare at all, and uh, I, I had had a wife who uh, just had a baby and CPR, and a baby that was being cared for in the NICU, um, and being a layperson and really having no experience in healthcare having two people in two separate different departments in the hospital that I'm supposed to be making decisions for, being appraised of their situation, being there for my son to try and feed him every few hours while also being in the ICU trying to make decisions for uh, for my wife. It was a very, very difficult, very, very trying time um, for us. 
I can only imagine. So I have two kids, and my when my wife was pregnant with our first, I was actually doing a NICU rotation in uh, in nursing school. So I knew just enough uh, to terrify me every <laughs> every day. Um, but you know, I think if anybody out there is listening, is a is a dad uh, or or a um, a partner to uh, a pregnant mom, you know that there is a certain amount of helplessness that you feel on a good day, right? That, um, you know, I, I'm here to do what I can, but what I can is pretty limited. And, you know, I don't know what's worse, knowing nothing about healthcare or knowing, um, you know, knowing all the bad things that could happen. But uh, but certainly that's got to be a incredibly powerless feeling um, to just have that suddenly dumped in your lap. Absolutely, it was. And it, it really, for me as the dad and uh, the uh, the spouse of someone in intensive care, it really took all the services in the hospital to try to um, care for me in a psychosocial way. Uh, case managers, social workers, uh, labor and delivery nurses that that I got to speak to about how to how to you know go about the next steps, the NICU nurses, um, all the different physician consultants. It really it took a huge team of people to try to deal with with my side of things being not the patient, um, and that's something I can speak to now for critical care practitioners that would be caring for a postpartum population. Is it's a very different population to care for. Um, not so much clinically as it is psychosocially. It's a very intense time, very dramatic. Um, you know, that you have issues of how do you deal with mom visiting baby or depending on your institution, baby visiting mom. How do you deal with the emotions of the, the partner who is either grieving or um, dealing with their, you know, very dramatic situation? Yeah. And so you mentioned you were not in healthcare at the time. You're an ICU nurse now. So this, I assume this played some role in that decision. Absolutely. Yeah. I was actually, uh, a few days after, um, after delivery, we were in the hospital with, uh, Miranda had had the opportunity to visit Van in the NICU and we were, she was kind of having her lesson as it were, as to how to handle a baby from the NICU nurse. Um, and I kind of looked at, my NICU nurse who I adored and my ICU nurse or her ICU nurse that was there brought her to the NICU um, and just kind of looked at my wife and said, I think this is something that I want to do. I, I saw the impact that nurses had made on our lives and decided that that's something that I wanted to do. It changed. It really did change both of our lives. Um, not only were we just immediately in love with our, our son and becoming parents, we had just gone through something that many don't go through at this stage in their life. And, you know, we were both very comfortable in our careers. We had been in our careers for, you know, a decade and just sort of enjoying uh, being settled in our in our jobs. And I think really for us, this was such a dynamic shift in our thinking about how we were going to spend our time, um, you know, working and what that meant. And for, for me, um, similarly, I thought there has to be something, you know, there has to be an organization for this. Uh, women shouldn't be dying in the 21st century from giving birth. And I was surprised to find there wasn't one. And having been in in finance and banking, I had sat on numerous nonprofit boards and sort of the idea came about um, in 
as I researched more and more about AFE, realized, um, one, we were incredibly lucky, but two, um, there was another family that looked just like us, that um, her and her son had perished uh, the same week our son was born. And I think there, in, in that moment, I said, something has to be done. I, we need to create an organization that not only can support families like ours, but especially the grieving families, but also to help spur or advocate for better research and education because I knew that we were lucky. Um, I knew that we were in a facility that could that could take care of us, but that's not the same for um, for many families. And so I went went back to work, I think six months after postpartum, um, went back to work in finance, um, but started the AFE Foundation and sort of did it at night um, and supported my husband, Bryce, while he went back to school and uh, you know, set off to become an ICU nurse. I'll say it now, I'm just incredibly so proud of him. He's actually the supervisor. He became a supervisor in the ICU two weeks before the pandemic began. So uh, full circle, here we are almost 14 years later. Um, we've got a robust organization. We're doing research with the NIH, as Dr. Martin shared. Collecting specimens on these cases is so important. And uh, for those who are listening and you have a case of AFE, uh, if you could as soon as possible, reach out to us at afesupport.org. Um, there's a number of ways to, to get a hold of us. We are looking for specimens that are pulled very, very close to the time of collapse and pre-event specimens. And there are certain things we need to do to those specimens to per, to procure them and and get them ready for to being studied. So, um, you know, it's been a wild ride for the last 14 years. I don't think either one of us ever anticipated the day we would become parents, it would also change the trajectory of our careers as well. Well, it so seems like you uh, you guys are doing some really great work in an area that's very needed. And so we will we'll link to your website. Uh, but folks out there, if you know of any uh, patients like this or cases like this, this is a good um, support service and uh, and a good opportunity to engage in research. Yeah, and I would say if I could just add too is that we do a lot of support. We we help with um, so many aspects. We help with vicarious trauma. You know, the trauma that occurs, especially for the labor and delivery staff. You know, this is an unexpected, um, very dramatic event. Uh, so the vicarious trauma that happens with them and and really all who touch this patient. Um, so we help with uh, healthcare providers. We definitely do intense support around uh, families who experience this. Uh, so we have support groups for widowers, for family members, grieving family members, and and for AFE survivors as well. So, um, you know, in and above the research, we are also doing a lot with education, just like what we're doing with you today, but also, um, you know, supporting the families that have been impacted. And Miranda, am I right in saying that your hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week? It is. It is. It comes directly to, uh, to my phone and uh, I pick up regardless of the hour. All right. All right. Well, I think this has been a really great um, episode, a really great case. Um, hopefully we can, uh, we can continue to do more, more cases like this. I think the OB critical care intersection is, is pretty fascinating. Uh, we want to thank our guests, Dr. Stephanie Martin uh, and Bryce and Miranda Clausen. Um, we will link to their FE website, uh, if you're interested, you can follow Dr. Martin on Twitter. She's at OB Critical Care. And on Instagram, Critical Care OB. Uh, Miranda is, can be found at AFE Foundation. 
and uh, we'll link all those as well, and uh, as well as some uh, other resources that we can uh, put together for you. So thank you guys all for joining us, and uh, I guess we'll see you next time.